Hello, I'm Earl Fontanelle, and you're listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast online at schwepp.net. Episode 152, Prolegomena to Early Christian Magic. Listeners may recall episode 98 of the podcast, The True Account, Celsus, Origin, and Ideological Esotericism in Late Antiquity. In it, we looked at the polemical one-sided conversation, if that's the right word, between Celsus, a second-century Platonist who had written The True Account, the first polytheist anti-Christian tract, which has come down to us, and Origen of Alexandria, the great Christian apologist of the third century, whose Contra Celsum against Celsus is a detailed riposte to Celsus's attacks, published sometime around the year 248. CE. We concentrated in that episode on the curious fact that both Celsus and Origen use similar and very esoteric types of argument. Both, first of all, are Platonists, though of very different kinds, such that both appeal to metaphysical ideas about the primacy of the good and so forth in making their arguments. And both men, secondly, agree that their preferred wisdom lineage transmitted through esoteric subtexts and the guarded statements of chosen sages and so forth, theirs is the truly perennial lineage. But there was a major part of Celsus's attack on Christianity that we didn't spend too much time on in that episode, but which is very relevant to the present discussion, namely his allegations that Jesus, the founder of Christianity, was not a philosopher or a holy man or anything like that, he was a goes, a sorcerer. Origen responded with the counter-argument that Jesus was not a goes, but displayed divine power, performed miracles, which were utterly distinct from the kinds of things done by goetes. Incidentally, Origen also mentions the attack leveled against contemporary Christians in his day, that they were using magic as well, not just Jesus, but the movement more generally. And we shall return to that accusation near the end of this episode, because, well, despite what Origen would like to believe or like his readers to believe, this accusation is in fact true. Now, the reason this argument of Origen's is particularly relevant to the subject of early Christian magic is that Origen agrees with Celsus in principle that, of course, goetea, sorcery, is pure evil and must be abolished. In fact, his counter-argument involves accusing the whole polytheist tradition of practicing goetea. This is significant, but not simply as an example of polemical tit-for-tat. It's significant in what it tells us about Origen's ideas about magic and what it tells us about a wider tendency among Christian apologists of late antiquity when they went on the attack, namely of conflating all polytheist religion with goetea or magia, magic and sorcery. Now, Origen definitely believes that magic is effective. Names of power, demonic summonings, and charms, or amulets, are all effective in combating disease, for example. But the pious will avoid using them. In other words, it's better to be sick than to consort with demonic powers. 
It's not about the miraculous effects, it's about who is behind them. Those who evoke Jesus' name, by contrast, may be beneficent religious types, good Christians, but Origen notes that Jesus' name is magically effective even when used by bad men. It's just a sovereign name of power. As are the names of the Hebrew God, which work for Jews and polytheists and Christians in doing exorcisms. So here the evidence from the Greek magical papyri bears out Origen's testimony, at least that everyone was using the Jewish God's many names for exorcisms. Whether or not these worked or not is another question which we can't speak to. But if we take all this evidence from Origen's counterattack to Celsus and put it together, we see that he's reframing magic in a very new way. Forget about the political and social side of the thing, which is pretty much all that Roman law up till now was concerned with when it banned acts of ritual power. Forget, too, the criterion of intention. It doesn't matter if you're trying to cure someone's sickness or do other seemingly beneficial acts. If you are using Beelzebul to do them, you are an evil magus. And all polytheists, by a kind of extension of this principle, are flirting with evil magus status, if not simply all magi, full stop. Now, we don't have time to explore the whole range of opinions of early Christian intellectuals about magic in depth. There are some good sources in the bibliography to this episode for those who want to investigate further. But speaking generally, Christianity took things a step further than polytheist culture had done, either in Greece or Rome, when attacking practices we might want to call magical. First of all, they tended broadly to expand the list of forbidden rituals massively to include absolutely mainstream acts of traditional piety. As we saw in episode 144, things like sacrifice and the burning of incense at shrines were condemned by many Christians in no uncertain terms. And increasingly, once they could get away with it, with violence. Not every Christian made the connection between such practices and magia stroke magia, but some did. And others saw them as forms of demon worship, which amounts to the same thing. So, rebranding polytheism as magic. Secondly, the Christian critiques of magic and polytheist ritual removed the factor of intentionality from the equation. It didn't matter if you prayed to Asclepius for healing. Everyone agrees that healing is a good thing. No one's against health, right? But you're still doing evil. It doesn't matter if your theurgic rituals are aimed at bringing you closer to God or assimilating your soul to the divine. We all agree that becoming closer to God is a good thing, right? You're still doing evil. Your intentions just don't matter in this critique. Simply by sacrificing or attending a temple or doing, well, any ritual action that isn't an approved Christian ritual, all of it is evil. As far as I can tell, Western culture had never seen a position quite like this before. We've seen a lot of examples of, for example, in the Roman legal system, condemnation of specific ritual acts in specific contexts. But this is something new. This is a blanket ban 
on unapproved ritual. Now, how blanket was this blanket ban? It evolved over time. Sometime around the year 318 CE, the Emperor Constantine promulgated the following law given here in Smith's translation. Quote, If any are discovered to have been using magic arts so as to threaten men's safety or pervert modest persons to libidinous practices, their science is to be punished and deservedly penalized according to the severest laws. End of quote. Okay, here we have some pretty rigorous condemnation, both of what you might call attack magic or aggressive magic and what seems to be coercive love magic, right? The uh, perverting modest persons to libidinous practices. Nothing that new, in, in other words. Very old Roman law from the fabled Twelve Tables officially outlawed malum carmen, evil songs, that is incantations, and later when the Romans got a hold of the term magia from the Greeks, they forbade that too in various laws. But Constantine's edict goes on, now showing a less draconian side, and this is very interesting. Quote, However, no accusations are to be heard against remedies sought out for human bodies or in rural districts to protect the mature grapes from fear of rains or from being crushed by the pounding of hailstones. End of quote. So, this is interesting. Constantine seems to think that perhaps people's intentions are relevant in cases like this. That is, the law courts should at least not be seeking out and punishing people who are just doing folk medicine and a bit of traditional weather magic. Maybe he's seeing it in that way, vis-a-vis intention, or maybe he's just being his pragmatic self and realizing that to try to punish everyone in Roman society who is engaged in these sorts of activities would be to try to punish, well, everyone in Roman society, except a few Christian hardliners and maybe a few atheists and Epicureans and those sorts of people. Things were changing, however. As we noted in episode 144 on the rise of Christianity and the invention and eclipse of paganism, the 4th century would go from bad to worse, especially in the Eastern Empire, if you were a polytheist, or maybe if you were interested in protecting your crops from hailstones. Only 50 years later, roughly, after Constantine promulgated that edict, Ammianus Marcellinus, the great late antique historian, reports that an old woman was punished with death for singing a charm against headache, and a young man was executed for reciting the seven Greek vowels to cure a stomach ache. The times were changing. Now, if we go a bit later still and look at the work of the apostate Manichaean and father of the church, the 4th to 5th century Augustine of Hippo, we see a crystallization of ideas about magic and illicit ritual, which had been circulating among Christians for some time, and which, once Augustine put his seal of approval on them, became very much the gold standard in official intolerance in the Catholic world. And Augustine's writings continue to be seen as unimpeachably authoritative in the Catholic world. Through a weird irony of history, this would also become the gold standard of official intolerance in Protestantism. And, in fact, in an even weirder irony of history, Augustine's critiques of magic and idolatrous polytheism 
would be used by Protestant critics of Catholicism precisely to accuse the Catholics of magic and pagan practices. But that is a story for much later in the podcast. Staying with late antiquity, it'll be worth looking at what Augustine says about magic to get some idea of what you might call an official Christian position in late antiquity, right? Keeping in mind, though, that this process of officialization of Christian ideas was a slow and messy one, as as we know and as we can see from Constantine's Law, which is sort of trying to ban magical practices while also hedging its bets and recognizing the reality of Roman social life. Augustine states categorically in his On the City of God, arguing with Porphyry, who in a writing has posited theurgy as a form of ritual which purifies the vehicle of the soul, states categorically that all magic is demonic, in contrast to miracles which occur through faith, maybe with angelic help, and condemns the platonic distinction between theurgy and goetheia, sorcery. Now, Augustine doesn't seem to be familiar with the nuanced debate over theurgy between Yamlukos and Porphyry, but he's responding to some arguments about theurgy in a work of Porphyry's that he's probably reading in a translation by Marius Victorinus, but the identity of it is a bit disputed. It's He refers to it as De Regressu Animae, on the return journey of the soul, but whether it is a standalone work that no longer survives in Greek or perhaps another work is debated by scholars. At any rate, Augustine says, no, Porphyry, your distinction between what you might call black magic and white magic or goetea and theurgy is nonsense. It's all evil. Now, Augustine readily accepts as part of God's universe the marvels of nature. And if we wanted to, we could find a sort of theory of natural magic in Augustine. Though he would never think to call it that, and I think it's a very anachronistic to, to look at it that way, because that doesn't really exist conceptually in late antiquity. In high medieval Latin Christian intellectual culture, we will see a rehabilitation of sorts of the term magia in this sense, Something like what we would call nowadays the wonders of the universe and their manipulation through applied science. But for Augustine and late antique Christianity more generally, magia is absolutely and wholesale rejected as at best fraudulent and at worst demon worship. Augustine's approach generally is to take all aspects of what we might call polytheist religious practice or traditional Mediterranean religions as being actively propounded by evil daimones. Thus, pagan temples are literally haunted or possessed places. His critique might thus seem rather credulous or unenlightened, but he also often deploys much more skeptical arguments. Like many Christian anti-polytheist polemicists, he's quite aware that magicians often use effects or illusions, and that we needn't always accept the evidence of our senses when encountering marvels produced by them. So there is the fraudulent side of magic as well, where they're just faking. But whenever they show real power, real supernatural power, that would be the demons. Okay, so what about miracles, Augustine? Well, here, 
all of these skeptical arguments fall by the wayside. Augustine regards every word of what he takes to be the scriptures as literally historically true. And thus, every miraculous deed recorded therein is A, divine and good, and B, utterly to be contrasted with magic. In fact, he refers to the famous magical contest between Pharaoh's Magi and Moses and Aaron. This is where the sticks get turned into snakes, you will recall. And the Jewish snakes eat the Egyptian snakes. He cites this as an example of how God's miracles were categorically different from the magical arts of demon-worshipping Egyptians. Quote, How striking also were the wonders done by Moses to rescue God's people from the yoke of slavery in Egypt, when the magi of Pharaoh, that is, the king of Egypt, who tyrannized over this people, were suffered to do some wonderful things that they might be vanquished all the more signally. They did these things by the magical arts and incantations to which the evil spirits or demons are addicted, while Moses, having as much greater power as he had right on his side, and having the aid of angels, easily conquered them in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. And in fact, the magicians failed at the third plague, whereas Moses, dealing out the miracles delegated to him, brought ten plagues upon the land so that the hard hearts of Pharaoh and the Egyptians yielded, and the people were let go. But quickly repenting, and essaying to overtake the departing Hebrews, who had crossed the sea on dry ground, they were covered and overwhelmed in the returning waters. What shall I say of those frequent and stupendous exhibitions of divine power, while the people were conducted through the wilderness? End of quote. Now, It seems to me, as someone without a horse in this particular race, that Augustine could have chosen a better example to make his point. If our definition of magic is something like act of supernatural power performed with the aid of supernatural beings, Augustine is simply saying that Moses and Aaron's magic was stronger than the Egyptians' magic. But what he wants to say is that there is simply no comparison between demonic magia and divine angelic miracula. This essential difference, again, is down to the agencies behind the acts of ritual power. The scriptural narrative in Exodus 7 doesn't distinguish between Pharaoh's ritual specialists, who have now been rebranded as magi, and their snakes, and Moses and Aaron's magical snake conjuring, except to say that Moses and Aaron's snakes won the contest. This is henotheistic, our god is stronger than your god type material, right? In the original source material. But now... With Augustine, we are in late antiquity and we are monotheists. Our God is the only God. The fact that you guys can actually turn sticks into snakes means that something supernatural has to be going on. But since it can't be God who's behind it, it must be the other guy. Actually, what Augustine says is God allowed the other guy to let them change the sticks into snakes, the better to trounce them. Now, this distinction precisely in Augustine's terms, went on to define almost two millennia of fairly uncritical assumptions about magic versus religion. Even in scholarship, as we discussed in our episode on methodologies for the study of magic, and this distinction only holds water if you assume a whole lot of theological positions, which are, well, let's say not immediately self-evident. We also might want to ask, What's so great about 
the god who is better at making plagues than the uh, Egyptians. <laughs> but from Augustine's position, the miracula of God are by definition good. So the Egyptians by definition deserved the plagues that came upon them. Now, we've spent quite a bit of time here looking at two important instances of Christian anti-magical polemic, Origen and Augustine. Now, these have been from intellectuals, because intellectuals are the ones who've given us texts from late antiquity which survive on these matters. But we can adduce to these what we know about 4th century Christian mobs rampaging through the countryside, destroying temples, burning books in great abundance, and we can maybe conclude that very strong anti-polytheist sentiment among many of the rank-and-file Christians of later antiquity will have also quite organically included a strong anti-magic component and will have often conflated polytheist religious practice as a whole with magic, that is to say with illicit ritual action and demonic ritual action, right? Now, here's the problem. We do have some texts from lower-class, uneducated Christians from late antiquity, notably from Egypt, where the climate and production of papyrus mean that such texts tend to survive better than anywhere else in the Mediterranean region. As we know, the sands of Egypt have given us much evidence in the form of the Nag Hammadi texts, which leads us to question the image of unilateral, single-minded Christian opposition to deviant thought and heretical belief. Whoever the Christians were who compiled the Nag Hammadi library, and they were almost certainly Christians of some kind, they were emphatically not reading Augustine, or if they were reading Augustine, they thought he was a dickhead. But it wasn't just works of scripture, or myth, or metaphysics, whatever we want to classify the Nag Hammadi documents as. It wasn't just these kinds of works that showed this rather un-Augustinian, un-Origenistic, just non-Orthodox line of belief or beliefs in early Christianity. We also have lots and lots of late antique Christian texts of practical addressative magic. We have plenty of other evidence which leads us to believe that this culture of Christian addressative practice was not limited to Egypt, but was probably reasonably universal. Uh, we've discussed, for example, the Testament of Solomon, a kind of narrative handbook of magical practice from late antiquity, and this seems to have been merely the tip of the iceberg. Now, this book, the Testament of Solomon, was never given the stamp of full Orthodox scripture by any of the Orthodox churches, but then, on the other hand, it circulates widely among Christians and Christian monks, even into the early modern period. So it's definitely part of what you might call one aspect of mainstream Christianity. We also have magical gems and all other manner of uh, material culture showing up here and there in late antiquity in the Roman Empire, which generally lead us to think Christian magic is alive and well in this period. So here's a question. Were the Christians writing these texts and presumably performing these ritual acts, like invoking angels and so on and so forth, were they asking the question, but is this Magea? Is this Goetea? Does God approve of this? Were they perhaps convinced that they were, like Moses and Aaron, simply calling on angelic help so as to facilitate God's miraculous powers of doing good here in the world? And that would even perhaps go with adding a few extra elements like 
burning of a fish's gallbladder or the inscribing of an amuletic gemstone or doing other acts of ritual power. This can all be subsumed under the banner of the Christian God, right? Now, these are interesting questions. Were people asking these sorts of things? But before we can even begin to approach answering them, we need to have a look at what we know about late anti-Christian magic in its incredible variety. The story of Christian magic, of course, really begins with Jesus. He's performing healing and exorcism all the time in the Synoptic Gospels, and so are his followers in the Acts of the Apostles. So whether or not we want to consider him a magus figure, see our special episode on the debate over Jesus' status as a magos for a detailed discussion of this question, whether we want to consider him that way or not, he was certainly doing things which people at the time would have considered magic. And he was doing things which people at the time that we would want to consider magi were also doing based on the Greek magical papyri and other sources of evidence. We know that Jesus was widely criticized for precisely this, and not only by Celsus. There's a load of internal evidence in the gospel accounts themselves and in the Acts of the Apostles, uh, which is clearly defensive. It's making the point that even though what Jesus is doing might look familiar to uh, amateurs of the magical arts, it isn't that. No, 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 no. It's different. And we have many other apologists for Christianity, um, starting with the early Justin Martyr and pretty much extending right through late antiquity. So it's not just the, the two big boys that we singled out as case studies, but you know this is a very common line, who all take the time to defend Jesus against the charge of being a magos or a goes. Now, no one defends against a charge which hasn't been raised. So clearly there were a lot more voices than Celsus's raised at the time, pointing out the fact that all of Jesus's miracles pretty much follow patterns familiar from contemporary magical texts. Among our earliest depictions of the crucified Christ, it might interest you to know, are two carved gems, both of which fit seamlessly into the culture of amuletic gemstones of late antiquity. Both have wokes magikai and are otherwise pieces of magical material culture. Uh, one of these gems, British Museum Gem 231, is an orange jasper, quite crudely carved, showing the crucified figure of Christ without the cross, and its obverse is covered with pretty much unintelligible wokes magikai. But the other gemstone, British Museum 457, is a much higher quality piece, and it may be very early. Uh, some scholars want to date it around the year 200 CE, though gemstones are notoriously difficult to date. This gem shows the crucified Christ absolutely surrounded by Wokes Magikai, including the favorite Greek name of the Hebrew god, Yao. Okay, variants of Yao. Okay, still, we're still sort of not too heretical. Magical vowels. Okay, still, it's just letters. It's nothing too satanic or anything. Some classic names of power, like Baditofoth and variants, and Satraperkmeth and variants. These are words we find on gemstones invoking all manner of uh, polytheist gods. Okay, this is maybe a bit difficult to square with the kind of Christianity that Augustine wants us to believe in, and even Origen would have some trouble here. 
But of course, we also find the properly Christian terms, Emmanuel, Jesus, Christos, which tells us this really is Christian magic. Or if this isn't Christian magic, then the term magic just doesn't mean anything, right? Now, both gems that we're talking about here can be seen in the notes to this episode or on the Campbell Bonner Magical Gems database. You can find a link to that in the Schwepp resources section. So here we have um, among the earliest iconographical representations of the crucified Christ, if not the earliest that we actually possess, an undeniably magical context. Now, in late antique debates about magic in Judaism, as we've seen, things like exorcism, healing, and amulets just aren't problematic. Although, to be fair, invoking barbarous names like Satra Perkmeif probably would be in a Jewish context, unless the author thought to specify that this was the name of an angel, in which case everything would be fine. The rabbis and the evidence of the incantation bowls and other material culture agree on the basic Jewish position that if you're seeking to do good to people, doing medicine, seeking protection, stuff like that, what you're doing is pretty much fine as long as it doesn't break Jewish rules and regulations. And you never, of course, try to command God himself, though you can command angels all day long and it's no problem. But Origen and Augustine paint a much more intransigent picture of ritual practice than we find among the rabbis. For these two, seemingly, everything that is ritual aimed at non-human entities is actually aimed at demons, and your intentionality is pretty much irrelevant. I'm overstating the case. For Origen, intentionality is still relevant. For Augustine, it's just not. Porphyry doubtless had good intentions with his theurgy, after all. As Augustine acknowledges, the goals of theurgy, bringing the human soul closer to God, are utterly praiseworthy, but Porphyry's intentions don't matter to Augustine, because Porphyry, whether he knows it or not, is consorting with demons. Now, this episode has explored a little of what we might call a theoretical background to Christian magical culture in late antiquity. This has mostly been highfalutin theoretical background from authoritative church fathers, but we also have adduced some intolerant mobs wrecking temples in the 4th century as lowfalutin evidence for a linked discourse of exclusive possession of rituals that are okay to practice. If it ain't Christian, it ain't okay, seems to have been the, um, the general idea. So in the next episode, we're going to subvert this idea. We get to explore some of the copious magical texts which survive from late antique Egypt and see if we can arrive at something like a distinctive typology of ancient Christian magical culture, or if not a proper typology, at least some, some notes, some distinctive notes of general usefulness for considering early Christian magic, as we did with late antique Jewish magic in our interview with Gideon Bohak. It isn't always possible to say for sure that a given text is Christian, or a given magical gem is Christian for that matter. As we mentioned earlier this episode, Origen mentions that non-Christians in his day are using the name of Jesus for exorcisms just because it's powerful. And we have a decent amount of evidence from ancient magical writings that Origen is right. Uh, indeed, returning to the gems mentioned a minute ago, need we assume that they are even Christian? We have hundreds 
of so-called magical gems from antiquity, depicting hundreds of different gods, goddesses, and combinations of different gods and goddesses. And the criterion of selection, we have reason to think, must often have been the reputation of a given god or goddess or collection of gods, whatever, for protection or what have you. Why would Jesus be any different in late antique magical culture? And anyway, what are we to make of a magical gem that we possess, which seems to show Jesus Osiris? What do you do with that, right? If I go to the gem engraver and am there to commission an amulet, but I'm kind of open to suggestions as to which gods are going to be depicted on it, as long as the engraver assures me that he's going to use some really powerful mojo for my amulet and it's going to you know, protect me, I will be a satisfied customer. This borderline between Christianity as an exclusivist movement, to which you either belonged or you didn't, right, which is where Augustine wants us to be, and Christianity as one ingredient among many in the late antique magical culture, which seems to have been the reality on the ground for most people, is one of the things that we want to explore in the next episode. However, we do have plenty of magical material which is unambiguously Christian, and while it includes a lot of recipes which you might think would go under the radar of the watchful eyes of the church authorities with minimal problems, like the sort of stuff that Constantine in his law says is, you know, kind of okay. I'm talking about exorcisms, general protective magic, and medical material. These are maybe relatively innocuous as far as traffic with demons goes, right? Uh, we also find a lot of Christian stuff which wouldn't have sat well really with anyone, be they Christian or polytheist or just a Roman civil judge. What about Christian coercive love magic? What about divination rituals? What about magic for revenge? Good old-fashioned curses? Spells for ascending through the heavens? And a personal favorite, what about a spell of summons by the power of God's tattoos? We find all of this and more in the dossier of late antique Egyptian Christian addressative practice. So join us next time as we welcome Korshi Desu, papyrologist in extraordinary, back to the Schwepp to explore the corpus of ancient Christian magic on papyrus and beyond. And in the meantime, stay esoteric. <laughs>